and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Thomas Penn, author of The Brothers York, A Royal Tragedy, published by Simon & Schuster, June 16th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. So tell me, how did you get into studying this subject and writing a book on it? Well, I wrote a book, uh, I guess it was probably eight or nine years ago now, um, called Winter King on the reign of the first Tudor king, Henry VII. Hmm. Uh, and he's really the most unlikely king um, in English history, I'd say. He, he for, for most of his early life, he was an exile. He was a refugee who lived... In, he lived in, in Brittany, um, in, in what was now Western France, and then in France itself, uh, basically on the run. And um, he was the most improbable king of all. And, of course, he defeated the mo- one of England's most notorious kings, uh, Richard III, at the Battle of Bosworth in August 1485 and founded the Tudor dynasty as Henry VII. Mm-hmm. But in a way, where Henry Tudor starts is where this story this current story, as I tell it in The Brothers York, ends, because the youngest of these brothers is Richard III. And in a way, Henry, Henry VII, although he's the, he's the beginning of this great Tudor story that goes on um, from the late 15th century into the English 16th century and throughout the English 16th century, this great age of upheaval and religious reform, it's also an ending. It's the ending of something else, and, and that is another century, the 15th century, which in England is a century of usurpation. Henry VII is the fourth of, he's the fourth, not the first, but the fourth usurping king uh, in under a century in England. Um, And the dynasty before him, that ruled before him, was the House of York. And this is the dynasty I talk about in this book. And the House of York was, it burned, it was a usurping dynasty itself. The first of its kings, Edward IV, who is the, the oldest of the three brothers that I talk about here, he usurped the throne from the House of Lancaster. And this dynasty, the House of York, burned very, very brightly. It rules um, from 1461 to 1485. And during this time, it establishes itself as England's undisputed dynasty, royal dynasty. It's, it's authoritative, it's magnificent, it's financially stable. And, and this, this is no mean feat, because the context in the 15th century in England is, is, is a period of real political instability and real civil turmoil. It's a period of civil war. Uh, the, 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 the wars that go, the civil war that goes on for three decades and more. I've got a name for the, these wars, the, the Wars of the Roses. Um, it's a struggle between these two royal houses, the House of Lancaster, which is the Red Rose, um, the House of York, which is the White Rose, for the English crown. And the Tudors, who, who, who come later, as I say, Henry Tudor, he, he's the one who claims to, to reunite England after this period of civil war, he, to bring these two roses together. And the Tudor emblem itself is, is a rose. It's the rose both red and white, taking England to this glorious new future. But really, the Tudors were never meant to be. The House of York, the, the, the dynasty that comes before it, is the dynasty that should have been the dynasty the Tudors became, and I wanted to I wanted to investigate this dynasty, why it burned so brightly, why it went horribly wrong, why everything went horribly wrong, wrong why it collapsed in on itself, and at the heart of, of, of its downfall, its both its success and its downfall, is the relationship between these three brothers, the brothers York. Mm-hmm. So in this time period, how much did, say, the peasant classes or the merchant classes have an involvement in what was going on or was all was the the military forces basically these these nobles with their their small groups how was that well that's a great question i think i should probably take the the first the first part the first part of your question first mm-hmm. um the question of the peasant classes now you know there's a, there's a long answer to this really and and it it starts in the century before, with 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 a pandemic, um, the Black Death, which which in England reduced the population by between, somewhere between a third and a half, um, and this has a catastrophic effect on on all sorts of things. Um, in particular, the labour market. Now, 
what happens following the pandemic and successive waves of pandemic is that basically those who have labor to sell peasants essentially are in the box seat to, to put it to put it very very simply they can sell their labor for much more because there are many there are far fewer of them and what what happens is that that in the 15th century in the 15th century you you the early 15th century you have a situation where the lower classes become and not just the peasants but but the lower classes i guess going up to small landholders and beyond become much more assertive um education is becoming more widespread and people feel that they should have more of a stake in politics now you know we shouldn't over egg this because england is still a feudal monarchy but where this finds expression is in revolts in, in peasants revolts in the peasants revolt of 1381 and then much later in 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 jack cade's revolt at 1450 but but as i say this isn't just about peasants it's about it's about gentry it's about small landholders it's going going really right down the the social food chain and popular revolt popular rebellion against the inadequacies what the perceived inadequacies of the elites and the failings of the royal family are at the really they they're, they're an undertow of the wars of the roses and and popular revolt and populism is is something right at the heart of our understanding of the wars of the roses we we have without without understanding that we can't pop, we can't really understand how the wars developed it was something manipulated by both the houses of lancaster and and probably more successfully by the house of york as well mm. and i guess coming on to the second part of your question the question of the mercantile class as well they matter a lot um you know by I guess by the the late 1440s, early 1450s, which is the prelude to to the story of the Brothers York, England's in a real mess. Um, and part of the reason it's in a mess is that economically it's it's bankrupt. The the Henry the Sixth, the Lancastrian king who precedes the House of York, he he's completely incapable. And at a time when monarchy is personal monarchy, when kings don't just reign but they rule, it's it's a real problem, but the the thing is that that of course kings depend on cash. They depend, as you well know, they depend on cash to raise troops to fight wars. Mm. Without money, they there can be no military campaigns, and so the loyalty, the the support of merchants, is extremely important. And the House of York was incredibly successful at raising cash. It was incredibly successful at cultivating the merchants of London and Calais, which was England's entrepot on the on the northwest coast of France in a way that the Lancastrians just weren't. London gave London alone gave Edward IV an enormous amount of cash, but they were also successful in reaching out internationally. Edward IV in particular he cultivated Italians and Italians at the time are essentially they are the they they rule um, finance in Europe. Um, and in particular a few banks, a bank that, that you'll know well and your your um, listeners will know well the Medici Bank of Florence which is incredibly influential at the time the biggest biggest bank in Europe and the Medici Bank was also the single greatest financer of Edward IV and his wars in England which gives some sense of quite what their reach was mm-hmm. so were they basically paid back interest these banks how was their involvement paid out well, yes, they were. They were basically paid in kind. They were they were paid in in offices. So, so for example, um, they they might have been given positions which which were lucrative positions in in government, which enabled them to to raise money as a result of of holding that office. But they were also paid in they were also paid in export licenses. Because these banks, as you'll know, they weren't they weren't just money lenders; they were also merchants, and they combine combine the two things. And, and England at the time has two products in particular to, to export. It has it has wool and it has cloth. And English wool and cloth are both um, very desirable. So, in return for not just not just loans, but but luxury all sorts of luxury items that Italians import into into England, um, fancy textiles and and fine wine and so forth. Mm-hmm. They they are given these export licenses as a kind of as a kind of collateral. But the problem is 
and this is an interesting point about your question. The problem is that those those export licenses are not good enough security, as it turns out. And in fact, by the early to mid 1470s, the Medici branch in London goes bankrupt because Edward hasn't paid back his loans, mm. and this starts a feedback loop that goes from London to Bruges, which is the financial centre of northern Europe, all the way back to Florence, and eventually, as we know, the Medici Bank goes bust completely. And you can you can say that it, it starts that that chain starts in the in England in the England of the Wars of the Roses under Edward the Fourth. And then, uh, huh, interesting. And, and I'm kind of thinking a little bit ahead where then you had Italians working for Spain, you know, as Spain went out for its, you know, its, its, uh, searches for new land, you know, basically sending out Christopher Columbus and the like. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. The yeah. Genoese were, as you say, the Genoese were another, another power, financial, financial powerhouse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Thomas Penn, author of the Brothers York, A Royal Tragedy. You can find more information about his work on the book's webpage. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So another part of the question I'm trying to figure out is, so when um, when these English uh, kings or lords defeated an enemy, did that mean they had access to a larger tax base, or did they basically go, did they basically pillage and steal from those they conquered to help uh, enrich their treasuries. Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, taxation is is a complex issue at the time because basically you don't have the kind of universal taxation that you have now. Um, England was quite developed as far as the Western monarchies were concerned because there was a parliament that that kings went to 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 ask for taxes, but the, the thing is that they could only ask for them. It wasn't like in France where what the king, what the king demanded, the king got. Um, in England, it was much, I mean, all these things are relative. By our standards, it wasn't consensual at all, but, but there was some form of dialogue between the king and what are known as the commons, so who, who are representatives of, of the people. But I guess, you know, kings are always struggling for cash in this period. They, they their outgoings, always are much, much greater than their incomings. And where King's, King's regular income typically came from things like customs duties as well, import-export tax, um, taxes, but primarily King's income came from, came from land. And this was a problem for King's because this is a, we, we think of a, a feudal, if you, if you think of a, a, a feudal structure, King's bind their closest supporters to them by giving them land. And then in turn, those great lords to whom they give land, they give lands to their supporters and so on and so on and so on down the food chain. Um, that's to simplify quite a complex picture. Um, and what happened in this period was that when, say, when, say, Edward, the, Edward IV seizes the, seizes the throne in 1461, he confiscates, as you say, he confiscates the lands of the Lancastrians who are opposed to him and he parcels those lands and those titles, the, the noble titles that go with them, out to his own supporters. But you see, this is this brings its own problems, because whenever in this in this age of, of this great age of usurpation, whenever kings new kings come to the throne, they're always brought to the throne by a faction of their own supporters. But the thing is, as kings, they can't just govern for their faction; they have to govern for the whole country, mm. and that includes the people who are against them. They, they have to be representative of England, otherwise they essentially they don't last very long. And so if you have a bunch of disgruntled opponents, a bunch of disgruntled Lancastrian lords who have to be brought back into the political fold, those lords will want their lands back. 
And of course, you, you know, you only have the pot of jam, as it were, the, the land can only be spread so far. So you have this situation constantly where this land, these estate, these great estates are always up for grabs and people are fighting over them the whole time and they change hands the whole time. What kings give, what kings bestow in land, they then take away and they give to another supporter as, as you know, if one supporter falls out of favour. Nor is that more true than in Edward IV's dealings with his own brothers, George Duke of Clarence and Richard Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III. And a lot of their problems actually stem from this issue of land, of wealth and power. What happens when you, once you've got it? How do you hold on to it? How do you get more? Mm-hmm. So I imagine a lot of the people who were trying to gain favor, obviously you're, you're nice to the guy in charge, um, but at the lower levels... Was there much in the way of, of, you know, murder or anything like that as far as how people were dealing with their neighbors who maybe they wanted their land and that sort of thing? Again, that's a very interesting question. You know, I mean, this is a, a topic that has really been batted about by historians for, for centuries, I suppose. You know, quite how bloody were the Wars of the Roses. I guess this goes back to my previous answer, because if a king is to rule on behalf of the whole country, and 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 in this in this kind of government, the king needs the lords to rule. You know, you 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 have a situation where lords are essentially the king's proxies in the regions. A king can't a king can't can't be everywhere, so he relies on these great lords. He gives them lands, and he says, right, you rule the northeast of England, Wales, uh, the southwest on my behalf. So he's effectively. In theory, he's supposed to be ruling through these lords. Now, that means that actually executing people and executing political opponents, particularly if you want to unify a country, is not a very good idea. It doesn't send out a good signal. And normally, in normal circumstances, you know, political execution is very rare. In this period, it becomes very common. And that's the thing that people find extremely scary. And I think... You know, one of the things that we have to understand about this period is that it, the, these wars leave their mark in more than just the violence and the body count. People become very anxious. They become very mistrustful of each other, and they become much more opportunistic. They, their loyalties, you know, the, the, the whole country is bound together by extended ties of family and loyalty, and these ties of loyalty begin to pull apart. People no longer trust the people who, they, they no longer trust the people who they used to trust. And, you know, as, as indeed one contemporary chronically says, he says that these wars were brother, father against son, they were brother against brother. And, and, and that goes for nobody more than these, these three brothers that I'm talking about in this book. So it's, it's an age of extreme mistrust I mean, to, to your point, that did did people lower down the social chain? Were there were there did people resort to violence um, to settle scores over land and property? Yes, they did, and this was a but but also this was a very litigious age. You know, it's mm. it's kind of it's kind of a bit like a fifteenth century kind of bleak house. If you look at if you look at the the legal records of the age, people. People are pursuing each other through the courts, and cases of inheritance and entitlement to land go on and on and on for years, for decades, um, even centuries sometimes. So people resort a lot to the law, but there are also a lot of feuds, and there are a lot of local vendettas. And one of the big things about these wars, in fact, is the degree to which little local turf wars, say you've got couple of families having a spat in Derbyshire in the English Midlands suddenly blow up into national, you know, as part of a national conflict. Because if you've got, as you have in the 1460s, you have two crown kings of England, you've got Edward IV of York and you've got Henry VI of Lancaster. If one of these local big men supports Edward IV and the other one doesn't get what he wants, then he'll go off and support another king. So, you know, Kings are always being told to keep an eye on local troubles, and they do, by and large. So you mentioned um, Italians being there. Were, were there much in the way of foreigners owning land and being part of this this whole issue, all this violence and litigation? 
Yeah, um, this is, I think there are two parts to an answer to this question. I think firstly, firstly, as far as Italians were concerned, Italians were much more of the mercantile classes. You know, they were, they were, they were particularly present in London. Um, there, there were big Italian um, families, big Italian districts in London, and also you had you had populations of, in particular, French and what were called Flemings, so people from Flanders, people from the Low Countries. Um, but the Italians, in particular, were high profile. They were they were rich. A lot of people came over from from. Bruges in the Netherlands, where, where as I say, um, the Italian banks had long since established themselves, and you have, you have a lot of the Italian population in London is very long established, and the, the, you know a lot of the time people are completely naturalised. They have Italian names, but you know they've lived in England. They're, they're pretty much English. They've, they've married, married um, English wives. Um, they become servants to the crown, but they don't tend to be big landholders. You know, they, they're more they're more the mercantile classes. But what you do, in terms of foreign involvement in the wars, this is a, a completely different picture because preceding the Wars of the Roses, you have this long period known as the Hundred Years of War, the Hundred Years War, which is starts in the in the mid fourteenth century under Edward III, and it ends really just as England is beginning its own civil war. You could say, in fact, that that the end of the Hundred Years War, the war comes home and and becomes internecine conflict in England. And the Hundred Years War is basically about the English kings trying to stake their claim to the Kingdom of France, which they believe they're entitled to. So you see you see all these English armies crossing the Channel, going over to France, trying to claim the throne of France. And this culminates in Henry V. And we've all heard of Henry V and actually the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. Um, that's the high point um, by 1450. England's lost all its territory in France and it all goes horribly wrong. But the thing is that in the aftershocks of the Hundred Years' War, you have a situation where foreign rulers, particularly the kings of France and the dukes of Burgundy and Brittany, are trying to exploit and influence the breakdown of order and the growth of civil conflict in England by backing one or the other side. And this goes on right through the period I'm talking about, from the, the 1450s to the 1480s. Um, you know, Edward IV is backed by Burgundy, He's, he's then, he then seeks alliances with France. You get a situation where the House of Lancaster is backed um, by France against him. Uh, later on, under the reign of Richard III, um, famously, of course, the King of France backs Henry Tudor against Richard III. So the European dimension to this is really, really important. So just to kind of go back to a question I asked previously. So this book, your book, covers uh, winter 1461, to summer of fourteen eighty five. So the uh -huh. question so the question I have is during that period, how much of this uh involved the meeting of forces in battle on the field, um, and how much was political and, and what kind of forces were used when they did meet in battle? I guess effectively the what happens with with this war, the the or this sequence of conflicts which stretches, yes, over, over three decades, from, from roughly around 1455, um, so six years before Edward IV, the, the, the oldest of these brothers, comes to the throne of England, up to 1485 and, and beyond. And in that, you have specific moments where the conflict really does flare up. And the first of these moments is, apart from 1455, where you, you have, you have a, a street fight in the Battle of St. Albans, but the first of these first big moment here is is in um, spring of 1461, or rather the, the winter and spring of 1461. And at this moment, very clearly polarised, you have two, you, the, the dividing lines are drawn. You do definitively have the House of Lancaster against the House of York, and England is split down the middle. So, for example, in England's most, most bloody battle, um, the Battle of Towton, which was fought in, in a raging blizzard on Palm Sunday, 1461, in Yorkshire, you, you effectively have all of England's nobility deployed on the battlefield against each other. And, and this is a this is an incredibly violent and bloody battle, even by the standards of the time. And heralds, um, who, who were the main recorders of, of, a, of, a, of a battle's progress, 
at the time assessed that some somewhere around twenty eight thousand people died, and even if it wasn't that many, it was it was getting on for that. So you know these are kind of first world war numbers we're talking about here, and in, in a population which you know was was infinitely smaller. So maybe two two and a half million people in England, which meant that if you had fifty thousand people on the battlefield, then probably everybody knew somebody mm-hmm. who had fought, and many pe- many people knew somebody who had died just in that one battle on that one day. Mm-hmm. And after Towton, which Edward IV wins, Edward IV, he goes, goes to London and is crowned. And thereafter, the conflict morphs into a kind of insurgency and counterinsurgency situation, particularly in the north of England, um, where Edward IV is trying to, and his, and his proxies are trying to mop up Lancastrian resistance. And that continues uh, throughout the early 1460s. Now, by the late 1460s, the, and, and this is one of my main arguments in this book, actually, the conflict starts to change. It's Edward IV is kind of establishing himself as, as England's king. But the thing is that his brothers and, and his, his very influential older cousin, Richard Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker, um, his brother Clarence and, and Warwick are, are becoming, for various reasons, increasingly disgruntled with his rule. And by the time conflict re-erupts in the late 1460s, in the most spectacularly unpredictable way, you have a situation where Warwick and Clarence, so Yorkists, are against Edward IV, the king who Warwick, the kingmaker, has put on the throne. And they go abroad to France and they link up with exiled Lancastrians. Mm. So you have this crazy situation where disgruntled Yorkists link up with exiled Lancastrians, come back and, and throw Edward off the throne. And... People, even even by the standards of the time, this is head-clutchingly crazy. You get Italian ambassadors, ambassadors in France writing dispatches saying, I can't really believe I'm writing these words. Uh, I must be dreaming, says one of them. Yeah. Um, so this is incredibly unpredictable. So you, you have a sequence, again, of battles in the late 1460s, early 1470s. In 1471, Edward comes back. Edward himself comes back from exile, obliterates his Lancastrian opponents, makes up with his brother Clarence and and then they go forward and this is the period the 1470s in which the Yorkists are the only game in town. Edward IV is on the throne and all is set fair. He has his sons he by, by his Queen Elizabeth Woodville so obviously with male heirs being the prerequisite for dynastic succession he's set up but the problem now in the 1470s comes within his own family and with an increasingly toxic relationship between his two younger brothers, George Duke of Clarence and Richard III. Now, this results in George Duke of Clarence being murdered um, by by the king, by Edward IV, his own brother, who's got thoroughly cheesed off with him, and he's, he's imprisoned in the Tower of London, um, declared a traitor and murdered in 1478. But then in 1483, this is the moment then where you have the next flare-up of military activity, because this is when Edward IV dies in 1483, and he dies, obviously, leaving two young sons, aged 12 and 10. And this is where his own younger brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who becomes Richard III, decides to seize power for himself. So then you have a situation where there's... These aren't really... We're not talking about pitched battles. We're talking about... We're talking more about the usurpation, the double usurpation of Richard III, Mm -hmm. which happens in April and then June 1483. And then finally in 1485, when you have the Battle of Bosworth. So... That was the long answer. The very short answer is that they're flare-ups. Mm-hmm. And you've always got this undercurrent of conflict. But it's what's one of the things that's surprising in the age is how, of course, normal life does continue. You know, people don't, don't stop trading. They don't stop living. They don't stop having relationships. Um, politics doesn't stop. And all this continues around these great flare-ups of military activity. Mm-hmm. So the impression I get is... With the big battles, you have your forces are your, you know, what you, your armored knights and your your spearmen and your um, archers and that sort of thing. And it sounds like during the smaller flare-ups, I imagine, you know, groups of unarmored men with their swords going about almost like uh, groups of thugs uh, doing their their thing. Tell me if you know. That's a very that's a very good. I mean, gangs would be a better. You know, I mean, thugs, gangs. Yes, I think that's that's right. And the degree to which these these kind of these 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 gangs are then conscripted and co-opted into armies is an interesting point too. Um, and I think something that hasn't really been explored that much. 
I guess the composition of armies is an intriguing thing because, you know, often the House of York, for example, the Yorkists against the Lancastrians, the Yorkists had the smaller armies, but they had the better equipped, more experienced, the more disciplined men. And often you would have at the core of armies, you would have the households of a king and their main and their major lords. And these would be people who were who worked for them, who often formed their first line of security. They would be their close servants. And they would be they would be the people who who were your plate armored knights, right? Who fought around the king, who would form these 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 squads um, which which were very disciplined, whose job was to protect the king, and which would basically be the focal point for armies. And then, to, to kind of bulk out your army, if you like, you had conscripts, you had people who were, who were as, as the phrase had it, arrayed, specifically for battles, who, who a, lot, a lot of the time would be fighting in completely unfamiliar terrain. You might have people who, who were essentially peasants from East Anglia, who would be called on to march 200 miles west to Wales and fight against people that they didn't know, that they couldn't understand, um, in country that they were completely unfamiliar with. And, you know, the problem is with, with these conscripts is that they're not regular soldiers. They are inexperienced a lot of the time. And, you know, as a result, they're not disciplined and their morale is not good. And just like anybody who gets told to pick up, you know, a weapon and, and turn out and fight, you imagine, I mean, you'd run away, and people did a lot of the time. And this is this is where you know the House of York's greater discipline told against Lancaster, which often had much bigger armies a lot of the time. So, so yeah, it was a mixture of a mixture of conscripts and a mixture of, of what were called retainers um, who who belonged to lords and and men of the king's household as well. I'm speaking with Thomas Penn, author of The Brothers York: A Royal Tragedy. You can find more information about his work on the book's webpage. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. HistoryRabbitHole.com Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So was it more, um, as far as the composition of forces, was it more a question of how they wanted to spend their money or what they had access to? You know, I imagine if you have a, a small but disciplined force, that's you're spending your money on more expensive but better troops rather than spreading it amongst a, bun a bunch of conscripts. Is that... That's right. I mean, I think I think that's fair to say. You know, soldiers were paid wages, of course. You know, they were paid by the day, often um, for a period of for a period of months. But what we have to understand here is very important is that there are no standing armies at this time. You know, so a lot of the time, people were the king might pay for men of his own household to kit out men of his whole, own, own household. But you're talking perhaps, you know about hundreds of people you're not talking you're not talking about thousands or even tens of thousands a lot of the time when kings ask their supporters their their main supporters so lords and knights to turn out they're asking those same supporters to bring their own men with them and to make sure that they're properly kitted out so a lot of the time it's the responsibility of the individual knight or the individual lord or even sometimes the, the, the individual soldier to bring what he's got with him and often um you'd have weapons or which would also double, double as farming implements so the bill hook for example which is incredibly effective at dragging um knights off horses which you know had a blade but also a point people would bring those kind of things with them but but again you know often if you're if you're rank and file you are you know you've maybe got a leather jerkin and a metal and a metal helmet you you don't have your plate armor that's for the that's for the elites or that's for the people who could afford it so as you say there was no standing army but how many of the um the citizens of the country you know I, i'm familiar with like there were crossbow guilds and maybe there were archery guilds you know how many people were skilled 
at um, military arts, but that wasn't their career. You know, they did something else, and maybe when a war started, they were hired for their skill, their military uh, ability. Well, um, again, that's a good question. I, one of the one of the distinguishing features of the English military, of course, is the longbow in this period, and the English in France. I talked earlier about the the, the Hundred Years' War, where the you you have English armies crossing the Channel, going into France and fighting fighting armies in France. Over over this period of time, generations of people acquire experience, particularly with the longbow. So by the time the civil wars come along, break out in in the late 1450s and early 60s, you've got a generation of soldiers who fought in France who know how to fight. So these are people who who are who are beloved and and they are disciplined. And this this might seem to contradict just what I've said about people being conscripts and peasants, but the two kind of go hand in hand. And indeed, it was by law people were required to turn out and practice their archery, practice the long long shooting shooting at the butts, the the targets. So practice, practicing longbow every Sunday. In fact, that was a law that was repealed only very recently in in England, crazily <laughs> enough. Um, but yeah, so people people knew how to archers knew how to fight, and archers were were a big component of any army in this period. And just to wrap this up, though, how would how would people be recruited when it was time to fight? Did they send out you know headhunters to um, raise raise companies, and um, how did that work? Well, more or less, they did. Yeah, and um, they they had what you see the authority for raising armies um, always comes from the king. And without that authority, you basically have a situation where um, lords are raising their own private armies. If they're not raising it with the king's approval, the king is effectively the commander-in-chief. If you don't have that approval, then you're essentially doing something illegal. Um, and what the king distributed to his, his, his chief supporters, the people who ex he expected to raise armies on his behalf, were what were called commissions of array. And this was basically... A a, a document that said I, the king, authorise you to raise um, to raise armies on my behalf, and it was to it was affixed the royal seal. Um, this great wax wax cake, if you like, imprinted with the king's the king's own seal. And so, equipped with this, these commissions were raised. Lords and knights would go out into their own their own countries, their own regions, their own lands, and they basically say, right, I need I need you to get me four men, I need you to get me six men, or whatever and will muster at these points throughout the country. So a king would, maybe if a king was fighting, Pepper the Fourth was, say, fighting a battle in the northeast of England, he, he'd set out with his own army, his own his own however many thousand men that he'd already got together from London. And he, at, at these muster stations, more companies and more groups would join up with him in the hope that by the time he gets to where he needs to fight, say, Towton, he's got his 25,000 men or whatever, in practice, and particularly as the wars go on, it won't surprise you to hear that people were very unwilling to turn out and fight. Um, but the simple reason that, that they were on a hiding to nothing. You know, if they ended up on the wrong side, then they would have committed treason because they would have fought against the victorious king. And, you know, often, as I said earlier, you'd have a situation where people are going out of their own regions and they're fighting in completely unfamiliar territory. And for what? So... A lot of the time, you have people dodging these commissions for rape. Also, you have a situation where the people who are meant to be raising troops for one king abuse it, and they actually go over to the other king with their document and say, right, I'm going to raise troops, but I'm going to take them to the other side. So it's an incredibly messy situation a lot of the time. Wow, that's, <laughs> um, that's interesting. So before I turn to how you did your, your research... Um, are there any other uh, significant aspects to this book that you'd like to uh, point out? I mean, one thing I would like to talk about a little bit hmm. are, are the three brothers that are, are really at the heart of of the the book. And and of course, you know, we the one I think the one out of these brothers, the one who your readers and your listeners will will have heard of is the youngest one, and that's Richard the Third. Hmm. But um. Is the first brother too, who is who, who perhaps is not so well known in the public imagination, but who is extremely compelling. Um, and Edward IV, who comes, the oldest brother York, he comes he comes to the throne aged eighteen in fourteen sixty one. As I say, he fights two battles, 
Mortimer's Cross and Towton, and he, he wins the throne um, from the this this completely incapable Lancastrian king, Henry VI. And Edward IV is in, well, one of the things that you, your, your listeners might find interesting is that, of course, Edward IV is he's the grandfather of Henry VIII. And like Henry VIII, he, he has this similar charisma. He's, a, you know, aged 18, he's six foot four, when, at a time when most people were a foot short, and he's absolutely gigantic, and he's magnetic, charismatic, he's a war leader. And he, he walks like a king, he talks like a king, He's very beautiful. Uh, people, people who see him in the flesh say he's the most beautiful prince that my eyes ever behold. He does everything very intensely. He's he's a fighting government, deal making. He's a, he's a trader. He as, as I said earlier, he, he likes having merchants around him. He behaves one chronically says rather sniffily like a merchant, and he parties, and he allows people round him because. The closer you get to him, I, you know, I said earlier that monarchy is personal, and the closer people get, the, the lovelier he seems. And nobody believes in his own effect upon people quite as much as Edward does. His own motto, everybody had mottos at this time, was was a, a French one, comfort et liesse, which means comfort and joy. But the thing about Edward is there's a darker side to him. So everything he does is very calculated, whether he's raising credit from our Italian bankers or, or working out quite how... The, the impact of his own physical presence on, on, on supporters. He's very excessive. He eats and drinks a lot. You know, he, he's clearly a functioning alcoholic from a very early age. And, and, and the doctors, typically doctors, stand next to a king at table trying to moderate his diet. And, and he's a real stuffer and guzzler. And, and people are unable to control his binging. He's a womanizer. A really rapacious womanizer, actually. And, and this appalls even his, even his close supporters and his followers. He's a narcissist, you know. He's he's he's, he's a typical narcissist. He, he displays a marked lack of empathy, a co- completely thin-skinned inability to accept criticism, constantly wants affirmation, and and indecision that that manifests itself at in itself at crucial moments. And I mean, we we can come onto this, but but what I've tried to do by pulling together these different layers of archival material is to paint this picture of Edward the Fourth. And for me, he's he's a, a, a king who is compulsively fascinating. Hmm. Uh, so let's turn to um, how you did your research. What archives did you use? Um, what was your primary sources of information? Well, I think I mean, one of the interesting things about about researching this period is that you know it's it's I mean it's it's appropriate really for this this very fractured period is that the chronicle the the, the documentary sources as well are, are very are very fractured, you know, they're, they're, they're very fragmentary. So you have, and, and they're very uneven, and they're often very unreliable as well. So you have, uh, you have everything from chronicle accounts, um, which are people who have actually witnessed stuff going on, or they've, they've heard about things going on, and they're reporting it, um, to, to things like government accounts. There are a lot of different kinds of archives that are preserved um, here in, in the UK and, and also in, in, in European archives as well, um, to, to legal records, to diplomats' accounts, which are, which, are, um, which are often fascinating. What you rarely have, to be honest, is the kind of personal records that more modern biographers might have. So you don't really have diaries. You know, with, with, with exceptions, you don't really have, have many letters either. The, the exception being that there are a couple of letters that exist a bit lower down the social food chain, such as the Paston letters, which are wonderful, but they're not. They only cast quite indirect light on on these these three royal brothers. So, what I've tried to do is to bring these layer up these different kinds of of archives, and and through layering them up, I guess a bit like applying washes to a canvas to try and build a picture of these different personalities and i think you know obviously you you have to you have to proceed with 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 extreme caution and you you have to approach them with an open mind which you know when you have an idea in your head and you're looking for evidence to support it can can sometimes be hard and you have to read very very closely a bit a bit like panning for gold you've really got to mm-hmm. keep your eye open for the the glint of precious metal as it were but but you know i mean i i have found i, I make some 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 real discoveries, I think, and um, and for me, archival research is 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 the thing that I love. 
So I know in the UK they preserve a lot of their history, you know, their physical history. Are there any notable uh, locations uh, or artifacts that you personally were able to interact with um, when when you did your research, something maybe out of the the normal person's eye or awareness? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, the, one of the one of the great things about um, the archives in the UK is that they are open to all, and and so you know anybody can can in theory turn up and look at um, look at these archives. I think one, I mean, one out of many really um, artifacts that, that that is under close wraps and which I was able to look at is the most extraordinary parchment genealogical roll of which which was was actually pinned up probably in, in um, Westminster Abbey when, when Edward was crowned, um, whenever the fourth was crowned, or, or around that time. It was pinned up for people to look at. And what a genealogical role is essentially it's a lineage. So it, tra- it, it, it shows, it portrays the legitimacy of the, the role's holder. It will trace their family back to time immemorial. And of course, in an age in which kings are fighting, the, the, the throne of England is contested, your ability to demonstrate your superior lineage is crucial, really, um, to show that you have the best claim to the throne. And what this role does is to, to, to show precisely this. And as I say, it was pinned up. So you think of a role, uh, the way that information used to be stored on paper, on vellum, um, was a role. So it was rolled, it was literally rolled up. That's what the role means. And that's how it was stored. But this one you unroll it, you can see the pinholes in the corners where it was pinned up for people to look at it. Because many people, of course, couldn't, couldn't read, but they could, they could see. And so what the role is, is it, it's very, very splendid. And it, it shows how, it shows pictorially, a bit like a kind of storyboard, how Edward IV claimed the throne and the battles that he won. And it's beautifully illuminated with, with, gold leaf and with all sorts of vivid colors that, that still remain vivid extraordinary you know even even over a period of, of, of more than half a millennium so that yes that was a that was a great privilege to look at did it just have names or were there any images or coats of arms or anything like that um, well, there were lots of images and, and i think the you know the, it was split into two parts so firstly at, at, at the bottom half of the role it shows edward's descent all the way back into the mist of time, into into British prehistory, and what it does is it shows, aptly enough uh, for for this period, it shows it shows it by, it is depicted as a rose bush. So you have these these intertwining thorns going go, weaving their way out of the parchment roll, and in in every in every rose in, as, as a rose flowers, it depicts an individual, and each each face is this wonderfully drawn little cartoon face with. Showing, showing the the individual, the features of the individual. It's incredibly detailed. And then the top half, as I said, you've got these these scenes from Edward's battles, and they're scenes as well that that they're paralleled with scenes from the Bible. So, for example, there's a there's a biblical analog to each. It's almost likening Edward to a, to a biblical hero, you know. Um, and yeah, it's all it's basically all done as pictures. What part of the research was most enjoyable for you? That's an interesting question. I, you know, I enjoyed. I, I loved. I loved researching the Italian stuff. I have to say, because I think the the links between finance and the economy, and the the needs of the economy and trade, this kind of history and the political history are imperfectly understood. But they they're always two sides of the same coin, and I really enjoyed getting into the nitty-gritty of finance, um, both the mercantile finance, the, the, the Italian finance, and how it mapped onto the political events of the time. So that, that was very enjoyable. I also enjoyed researching Richard III, really, who, you know, he's incredibly challenging because, you know, what, I guess one of the key reasons I wrote the book was to put the, the, the very extreme events of his, his usurpation and, and his brief and completely calamitous reign in context. So... I wanted to move beyond the, the twin stereotypes that really dominate so much debate on him, which is incredibly polarized and, and gives rise to, to, to great emotion, um, understandably, and to give a sense of the world out of which he emerged, which formed him, and, and to try and understand why he acted like he did, really. So I, I'd say that, that, that Richard was, that, that was another, another very satisfying period of research, yeah. What was the most surprising thing you discovered? 
I would say that it's probably again goes back to Richard because you know I guess a lot of the time um, you know there's this question of, of why why this question about Richard is is why can a man who, or how can a man so so obviously loyal to his brother Edward IV and throughout this this period of civil conflicts. Um, Richard, as he grows up, he's he's almost a decade younger than Edward IV, but he's the loyal one. He sticks to Edward. He becomes his real right hand man. And why can he why can he be so incredibly loyal to to Edward IV and then prove so incredibly disloyal to his brother's offspring after after Edward IV dies? And I guess such a question presupposes um, a kind of transformation in character in Richard that he kind of shifts from a very dutiful Dr. Jekyll type to usurping Mr. Hyde, but I think what what I found really is that he doesn't change because Richard is he grows up as all the brothers do, but particularly so in this age of extreme political instability and Richard's Richard's I guess reaction to that is that he he, he he craves all the things that he doesn't have. He craves order. He craves security. He craves clarity, and he finds these qualities in in the abstract ideals, things like chivalry, things like justice, things like piety and loyalty that he he finds in the books that he reads and owns. And Richard is a, of all the brothers, Richard's a great bibliophile, and we're lucky enough still to have um, many of the books that he had in his library. They still they still survive with us, and he he really believes in these ideals. And more than most people, he draws on them to understand and, and, and interpret and sometimes shape the very messy reality around him. So, you know, you can see this in one of the books that he owns, um, which is a chivalric romance about uh, a knight, the greatest knight in all the world, Epomedon. And then at the bottom of one page, Richard writes his motto. He writes um, his, his motto that he had as a young man, uh, le désiré, which is a French phrase, meaning I've wanted it so much. So he reads about the knight and he says, this is what I want. I want to be like this virtuous knight. Um, and he has this very binary view of the world, I guess. You know, um, he sees himself on the side of virtue and right and good, and his enemies on the side of evil. And and that really, you know, that that really helps him when he's Edward's right hand man. It serves him very well on the battlefield. He's a very ferocious fighter, um, which is surprising in a way because he he's um, increasingly afflicted by this this back problem, this condition called scoliosis, and he's he's quite thin, but he makes up for it with this incredible, incredible courage. As his brother's right-hand man, this this works for him really well. But as king, it serves him very poorly because he, he comes to the throne and he thinks, well, I want to be the ideal king. I've got what it takes. But these ideals really swiftly disintegrate on contact with reality. Mm-hmm. And his response to the the unpredictably, un, I guess, unpredictability and the confusion of, of real-life events rather than the, the very clear, fixed narratives of books is... It results in, I guess, a kind of, you might call it a kind of cognitive dissonance. He, he can't bear confusion. He can't bear lack of clarity. And, and this leads him to get rid of political opponents and anybody who stands in his way. So I, I think, I think that, that probably this appreciation and understanding of how Richard's formation led him to act as king was one of the things that I, I felt very clear about and was happy to, to clarify, to my mind, anyway. Mm-hmm. So knowing... There are lots of gaps within the historical record. Was there a particular question that uh, that you really wanted an answer to and, and got to after a lot of research or maybe still open that you'd love to get um, some kind of conclusion on? Ooh, it's an interesting one. <laughs> Did Richard III kill the princes in the tower? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's, yeah. <laughs> um. Was there anything in your research, and again, you know, researching old history can be pretty dry, but was there anything that uh, that you came across that had an emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, I think that it's it's very possible to find, I mean, I think that, that really the way that, that, that historical characters who, who, you know, from, from such a distance, we... We can we can tend to view characters as as perhaps types, or or um, we we can we can perhaps not see them so much as, as as humans. But I think the way that the historical record, you know, is always 
yielding up examples of people's humanity in all its in all its contradictory complexity. And the more that you look at that, even the 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 apparently the driest kind of kind of material, government records, legal records, you see. You see examples of this humanity of, of, of people making the wrong decisions, of taking decisions for what they think are the right reasons, but actually end up being totally catastrophic. Or, you know, on the other hand, you know, examples of incredibly cruel behaviour. Um, and I think, you, you know, weirdly, you come across this time and again. So, I guess that I guess that one one example would be from the letters of, of, of a, a Norfolk knight, John Paston, who whose career follows, his career follow, is at court and, on, and as, as, a, as a Yorkist and then as a, as a Lancastrian turned Yorkist, follows all the way through this period. And, and, you know, his letters home are full of this kind of humanity. He's you know, very excited to be at Edward IV's court. He's, you know, he's really thrilled by spectacular jousts and great feasts. And at the same time, when he makes the wrong decisions, you know, which he does, he's, he's on the run, he's wounded by an arrow, um, he's, he's really concerned, he's really worried, he's, you know, he's desperately anxious. And one of his last letters, he, he turns up in London to, to, to progress some legal business with the king, and he's really afraid because the plague's broken out again. And he said, you know, I found, I went to my lodgings in London, he said, they weren't as clean as I hoped they'd be, and, you know, the plague's about, and... Um, you know, and by the way, can you send some stuff from home? I really want these particular books, and you know, can you send this stuff that I'd like to have with me? And a month later, he's dead. And you know, that really—I mean, particularly in our age now—I think um, you know that letters like that have have a, a real impact across the centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, apart from filling the historical record, what do you hope the book will do? Well, I hope it will. I mean, I hope I hope that that it will act as perhaps a a new way and and a, and a, a fresh way of seeing this incredibly fraught, violent, unstable, very rich time. Um, but I also hope that it will it will direct people's attention to this dynasty, which and this period, which so so often tends to be overshadowed by the people who. Who've, the dynasty that followed it, which is, of course, the Tudors. And, and as I say, the Yorkists, in a way, were the dynasty that the, the Tudors should have became. And, and their tragedy was that they destroyed themselves and let the Tudors in through the back door. So I, I hope in, in some way it will, it will help reestablish this period in, in the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? No, not at all. I mean, you know, the book took me a long time. And... Um, it, like like writing so often is I, it, it was a very intense period particularly towards the end but um but no i um no not really okay good what's your current or next writing project i'm sort of keeping that under wraps at the moment because i'm still thinking about it but it will be something quite closely linked to this but 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 also something of a sideways move um but i'll be sure to let you know as soon as i've uh, soon as I've um, nailed it. Good, good. Where can people find you online? Do you have a website or social media? Do you know, I, uh, I'm terrible. I don't do any social media at all. <laughs> um, so I guess people can find information about your work on book sites like Amazon and that sort of thing. That's exactly, exactly. Okay. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, no, that's great, Chris. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for your questions, and they're very, they're very provoking in a good way. Good, good. Well, thank you for speaking with me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, War Scholar 1945. 
You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.